Have you been looking for a way to stay focused on your goals and grow your MSP? Accountability groups from Rocket MSP can help. We offer weekly accountability sessions that meet online with a group of your peers. Your success begins with accountability. Go to www.rocketmsp.io to join your accountability group today. We, we talked about uh, some stuff that made my brain hurt, not going to lie, and you were able to, to simplify it for me and basically explain that, you know, SD-WAN allows you to control things at the, I'll call it the data center that's not your office, you know, that, so it, it, comes in, it comes into that place, wherever the data center is, that does whatever you ask the, the network equipment to do, and then it sends it to my office or home over my internet connection or connections. Mm-hmm. And I believe you also said that SD-WAN originally or is supposed to be or whatever designed so you can take two or more internet connections and bond them. So that way, if you've got a, you know, me, I'm, I'm lucky. I've got a gigabit connection here right where I'm at. So what you're saying is I could get five of these gigabit connections. Yes. Bond them all together mm-hmm. using an SD-WAN and now have five gigabit internet. Essentially, um, the only thing I would caution on using the concept of five gigabit is uh, just like Amazon services. If, if you do threshold testing, uh, a lot of them can't exceed a gigabit per second. Um they, they just don't expect the consumers of that to be getting more than a gigabit per second of a stream anyway. So um, I know that we've done but tests with cloud five. access product that are three gig, I think, you know, uh, but when you start getting into five gig, I, I would ask the question, what is it you're trying to do with five gig of throughput? Don't tell me how to live my life, Rob. Just let <laughs> me live the fantasy. <laughs> hey, I'll just pick the right tool to make it happen. That's the difference. So, all right. So, um, <laughs> so I, so I should not have uh, a five gigabit connection. But what you're saying is, if I had uh, five ten meg connections, yes, then I could have a fifty meg connection essentially by or bonding 500 them together. Five hundred meg, absolutely. Then why not five gig connections? The only reason I cautious people on gig is that um, we've run into issues uh, even just in the last month here, like I said, with Amazon, where um, someone had um, uh, their data center services in the same data center as um, some partner they were connecting to their application. Mm -hmm. And there was a gigabit threshold between the hypervisors and the technology that Amazon uses in the data center. So even though it's one millisecond response times, they had a one gig bottleneck. So when we start exceeding that one gig bottleneck, I just start to make sure everybody understands, you know, there's technically you're just moving the bottleneck at that point. There's still restrictions. So, um, well, I I think the obvious answer is what do I want a five gigabit ethernet connection for? Um, I mean, like you said earlier, we don't want to use bit torrents. It's because news groups are better. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> and where I would go with this conversation is, like, let's just say in a closed lab environment, you had server, let's say it's an SMB server, you know, something mm-hmm. simple, 4445. Um, you've got your SMB client on the same network. Let's even say it's a 10 gig network, just so that you've I got, like it already. you know, like, let's see what this thing can do. 
even if the process and the, the hardware you've got, you beef that up and you max it out, how fast or how long does it take for that SMB traffic to consume one gigabit per second? I challenge anyone listening to this to, you know, do that experiment. And what you'll see is, is there's a, a slow start kind of graph and it's, it's, it's not just a, you know, one gig. It, it takes a second to, you know, to get to that level of throughput. Sure. You might have it available, but now you're talking about limitations of TCP. And this is where Replify comes in. Uh, time to first byte mm. is a metric that on any web page, you can right click in Chrome and inspect element, and then you can refresh the page that you're on. And it doesn't matter if it's a new sites are great. You know, I'm not going to pick one mm-hmm. for, you know, staying out of, you know, left, right leanings, you know, pick, pick a third party country, you know, BBC. I, iPhone or Android. Doesn't matter, you know, whichever <laughs> one you prefer. But inspect element and look at that waterfall. You know, you're going to see at least 100 to 200 different HTTP GET requests. And the time to first bite, you'll, you'll see this. This And I, I, this would be a great demo someday just to show the problem. Because I've, I've been really surprised to learn how many MSPs really have never dove that deep into analyzing the tools they're working with. So something slow, they have the option right there in Chrome to really see what part of it is slow. Some of them are using outdated DNS. It's just, you can, you can see how long does it take for this one request out of that 200? How long does it take for the DNS response? How long does it take for time to first byte? How long does it take for delivering the actual payload? And when you really start to look at that stuff, you get a deeper understanding of what it is the real problem is that you're trying to solve. And with, you know, a dentist type of setup where they've got this application. They got a couple of branch offices that are all connecting to it. They don't really have bad latency, but it was designed to work in a LAN environment, which is still sub, you know, 10 milliseconds, not 50 and 100 milliseconds. When you start working in those types of environments, you really start to see the value of Replify where they do TCP enhanced, like we started to talk about TCP BBR or, um, you know, time to first byte enhancements, optimizing things that, you know, uh, layer three and above uh, or layer four and above, you know, even getting HTTP specific um, protocol optimizations. So instead of having to wait for this back and forth three-way handshake, if you've ever done a Wireshark capture, you can, you can see that ladder diagram. That would be another great tool to do where we can actually see the back and forth before you can even transfer byte number one. Let's say it's just, it's just a 1K payload. The time to send that is huge. That's the type of thing that WAN optimization addresses. So you can go from this curve to saturate that link significantly quicker. All right. So I just shared my screen a moment ago. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna put it back up here in just a moment. Um, so I'm not a Chrome user. I'm a Safari user. Okay. Because um, I'm I don't know because I like being that guy maybe. Yeah. So if I if I look at this website um, that. Uh, full disclosure, I designed this website. Okay. Um, if I'm looking at this correctly, JavaScript and events is happening before the 60 millisecond mark mm-hmm. or the 70. I don't know which one is which, but so you just said that the newer websites are are super not great. Well, no, so to clarify, if it depends on your hosting provider. If they've enabled HTTP2, for instance, then you're doing some things at the server level like TCP multiplexing, 
which is something we've been doing in WAN optimization for a while. And we do that for things that don't natively support it. So websites may not be the best application here to talk about that problem with, but just so that you can see the problem, this is the easiest way that everybody on this stream can just right click and see it. And you may not be able to see it that way with, uh, like I said, the dentist application, you know, uh, if it's web-based, then of course you can. Um, but most of like SAP or, you know, any pick, pick any ERP system. I've, I've still not found one that is HTTP two where it's trying to overcome some of these problems. And hmm. those are the types of, uh, applications where when optimization would just a- absolutely, you know, help, um, SMB shares across the internet or VPN. You know, we can talk about why it gets worse over VPN. So it, you know, makes it clear how web optimization helps. But just your run-of-the-mill website, you know, those really aren't the problems we're trying to address. Even though it does help, we're that's not our focus. This is just the easiest way to show you the problem. Gotcha. Okay. That that makes better sense because I was about to yell at you for saying all new websites are slow. And mine no, no, isn't, no. darn it. No, actually, there's, there's a great tool, uh, and I don't remember the name of it right now, but there's a, a little Chrome plugin. I don't know if there's one for Safari, but um, uh, you can enable uh, HTTP2 and uh, Speedy Indicator, and it'll show you if the website is HTTP2 compliant so that you're getting that, that you know, instead of serial, you know, ping, 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 BB gun type of effect, you know, it's a shotgun effect. And, you know, ask for this, and you get you know, six concurrent, you know, HTTP streams multiplexed in the response. So instead of you having to wait for that 15K thing before you go on to the next request, you know, download and page load time. That's kind of the thing to look at in the bottom of that inspect element section of, um, you know, your browser. We've, we've seen that cut, cut down to 25% of what it is, you know, nine yeah. seconds to load a page down to three seconds. So we're not always talking about byte uh, deduplication and benefits offloading bytes as much as we are also time. So, but if you've got HTTP2 on your website, you know, that's great. Um, we still help in that regards. We have HTTP2 support, so we're still doing some things there, but that's just the way to see the problem. Okay. Um, all right. So let's get back on the train here, the SD WAN train. Uh, choo choo. <laughs> uh, all right. So this all still hurts my brain, Rob, but I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. So you said that you work with some of these other vendors. Uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned Ethica and yes. you mentioned, I'm going to say Replibit, but I know that's not right. Replify. Replify. <laughs> Replibit would actually be very applicable, though. That, that's a good one. I'll- all right. So. How, okay, so Replibit. Let's talk about Replibit for a second, then, um, because maybe we should talk about how 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 can this apply in the real world. So Replibit sure. is is a backup tool. So we could switch that out for a Datto BDR or Veeam or mm-hmm. uh, any other backup software, and let's pretend we're backing up over the cloud. Sure, that's a perfect use case. All right. So walk me through this. What do we need and why? Because okay. I want to make sure my backups are fast and uh, never fail. Right. At the, you know, at the internet end, I should say. We, we had a bank that we worked with in the past that had um, uh, 10 meg over their MPLS connections. And uh, their backup was still going at 
you know, eight something in the morning when people started to get in, which makes people a little nervous, you know, that the network's Mm -hmm. slow and, you know, the application they're connecting to is slow, sometimes not even available um, if it's being backed up. And an eight hour backup job we've seen with Replify reduced to a couple of hours. So, you know, how does, how does that work? Really? Absolutely. So there's, there's several different uh, technologies that Replify uses. Um, For one, compression. Uh, you know, how do we squeeze 50 meg of stuff into a five meg zip file? It's the same basic technology just applied to the TCP stream. So if we compress that stuff down, we've got enough compute power now, even if it's running on a Windows server directly with the Replify client, not a box in the middle, you're using the resources you've got with this simple application that's installed right there to crunch that down before it ever goes across the wire. All right. So is this application something that you're providing us or, or one of your vendors, I should say? So it depends on the use case. There, there are some use, case, use cases where we can use the stock Replify uh, client, but because mm-hmm. we're an aggregator, we can get... Uh, uh, Maybe better pricing than direct. Yeah, exactly. Um, we also provide a level of support. You know, They're focused on the OEM market. and um, a lot of the MSPs I've worked with have a lot more questions. You know, they want right. a little bit more access to guys that can do pieces for them. Like to run a Replify environment, you've got to have some Linux expertise. And what my experience has been is most of the MSPs that the gross majority of SMBs rely on, they're Microsoft-centric guys. You know, uh, they're they're not the guys that are going to be able to troubleshoot Linux. You know, they they probably run some things, but you know, they really don't want to manage those sometimes. So we do the heavy lifting there, you know, for them. Uh, but there are also cases where, you know, Repify doesn't provide um, user authentication. So we've got a wrapper uh, application that we've built that can go in front of that to give uh, the ability to user registration and manage the Replify piece as a background service, which hmm. also helps with branding. You know, it, it keeps Replify from having to, you know, branch their code, which leads into an OEM agreement, which is much more expensive. In order to deploy it, we can work with an MSP to manage that as a background service. So if you have an RMM tool like LabTech or um, uh, half a dozen, Automate. Kaspersky, Kaspersky could be a big one. Uh, or I'm sorry, not Kaspersky. Um, Kaseya. Kaseya, thank you. Um, the one that has an impact. <laughs> Right. Any of those, you know, if you, if you, if you do push button application deployment, um, you know, we can get the Replify client pushed out that way. Um, so you, you don't even have to talk to the users and let them know that you've deployed Perfect. anything. They just notice, it, notice that it's faster. So um, the policy configuration, all of that, that's why we're a value-added distributor. We can help you with all that setup without you having to have that expertise. Now, when when we say, hey, Rob, you know, we need this wrapper, we need this, we need that, um, is this stuff that you're charging us for? So most of our value-added features are um, baked in, if you will, where, mm-hmm. you know, we uh, use our margin to share with our partners. We're, we're channel-focused, but if we do have a customer, you know, that needs this directly, we, we will service them but we will immediately start looking for an MSP in that region because we, we want to bring MSPs up to par, you know, to be able to manage this stuff themselves. Um, uh, 
don't know if that answered the question there or not, but so you don't charge us for the for the extra stuff that you've written? Well, it it just depends. Like let, let's say for instance, yeah. you you had a team of Linux guys, you had um your own data center, you know, you're going to get something closer to software only pricing and we make our margin on that. Got if it. you need someone helping manage the server running in your cloud, you know, we're going to charge you something for that, but it's it's just to cover our cost more than it is. We want you to scale. So our our pricing is really sure. focused on the per unit stuff. But so it sounds let's like, say you even need like to offer it as a service. We can do that too. But we prefer yeah. to help you grow it if you want to. But it really depends. There's a, a big range of MSPs out there. So, you know, some of them are even, you know, lone wolves that, you know, they really don't need a lot of help. But at the same time, they they just want to manage it. You know, they don't they don't want to brand it. They their brand is them, their time and the ability to find mm-hmm. the solutions. Some people want to be able to monetize this in a different way to compete with MPLS. So it, it's not, a, unfortunately, a um, package of a thing, but we go through probably a 15-minute call, you know, a 30-minute call, and we can figure out pretty quick which model fits you best to get you, you know, what you need. Okay. And that's something you're never so, going to find with most of the ISPs. They're selling it. It's a packaged product. It's a fixed price. And, you know, you're looking at hundreds of dollars a month a lot of times for, you know, something that you, you don't need half of. So you mentioned MPLS. Let's talk about that for a moment. Um, it has been a long time for me, my friend. So refresh my memory. Let me know if I'm wrong. MPLS is when you just want a connection from one site to another. And you don't need an internet connection. Well, it's going over the internet, yeah. but site site A is like the, we'll call it the master or whatever you want to call it. And then site B, their internet connection, because it's MPLS, they can't see the whole internet. They can only see site A. And then right. if, if they want, they can set it so that they can get to the internet through site A's internet. Essentially. So the private subnetting, is offered to you by the ISP. So you have a point-to-point circuit, if you will, that they are managing. And what a lot of people don't realize that, you know, I, I've, I've gotten a lot of confusion on the fact that, oh, well, my MPLS network is much more secure because it's it's not on the public internet. Well, that's yeah, it is. mostly true if you think about just the fact that people can't, you know, see that private subnet traffic except for your ISP. And what a lot of people don't realize yeah. is a lot of ISPs now are scanning that traffic because it's not actually encapsulated and secured. Um, it's it's just a private label, and they can see it plain as day in their equipment. So, um, and when you say they can see it plain as day, walk, walk me through that. So, like they can see I'm I'm playing Call of Duty and and I just got the new high score, or they can just see that I'm connecting to callofduty.com over port X. They know port X is the port typically used for online multiplayer gaming and that they can tell I'm, I'm connected to the game, but they couldn't tell me right. I just won. Yeah. Let's, all they let's, use, let's use VoIP as a specific example. You know, it's, okay. it's not encrypted by default. So, you know, um, I, I'm actually broad self certified. So you know, I've been through that. I uh, worked with a company years ago. Um, uh, built a provisioning system, you know, Polycom 501s, you know, that era. And that traffic between the phone and the data center where that's being hosted out of, it's it's not encrypted. Not The signaling is not encrypted. So, 
the phone number information, the, you know, uh, caller information, the signaling, that's not encrypted. Um, likewise, the payload is not encrypted. So if you're using G.711 or G.729 as the codec, which you're not necessarily choosing, the provider's providing it for you, even if you've right. done a slider to make it better for your bandwidth, that's not encrypted. So whoever is in the middle is doing very often analysis on that. Even if they're just capturing the signaling data, port 5060, they can see traffic information. We used to do this all the time. Um, some of it's regulated that they have to. So there's some people that have a privacy concern about that issue. And there's some people that have just a, you know, you know personal issue with it, I guess. This is why you see kind of an uptick in VPN usage in general, where at least this ISP that I don't trust or this country of origin that I don't trust, they can't see it because it's now encrypted. Hmm. But what if you want to be in control of where the exit point is, like an MSP, where they have their own data center or they have an agreement with OVH so they can run whatever data center, they can run these services in whatever data center they want and be in control of where that data flows between point A and point B, that data is encrypted. So you can't, um, you can't see that. And on an SD-WAN product, that's, that's great for shielding from your ISP if you have trust issues there. And I've talked to a lot of MSPs that do for various reasons. You have a lot more confidence that that traffic between, between your CPE and the data center in control of someone you trust is encrypted. Just like a VPN. Uh, AES 256 bit encrypted or whatever encryption level you want. That's normally a choice. Um, but that's important to a lot of people. And that's something available in the cloud access product, the Replify product, anything that's bookshelved, you're in control of where it comes out and if it's encrypted or not. Okay. So I just want to ask a clarifying question. If they can, it's because the payload is unencrypted. Does that mean that hypothetically they can listen to our phone call? I mean, no question. Um, pull up Wireshark one day. Um, like I've got a Ubiquity, you know, device at home. Um, I've got a mirror port on one of my switches. There's a lot of different ways that you can get that without being directly on your own laptop. As long as you're in mm-hmm. line on the network, most people know how to do a PCAP, you know, PSense, OpenSense, you know, you, th- there's an option. You just go right in there and capture that and then analyze it later in Wireshark. Uh, I don't remember the tool you know, menu exactly off the top of my head, but you can do a ladder diagram to see what all calls did it see traverse the network and then let me listen to the payload to the point where you can even say, I want to isolate audio in this direction. I want to isolate audio in this direction or I want to play them both at the same time so I get both sides of the conversation. And this is actually something that you have to do sometimes for debugging, you know, there's something in the network causing problems, you know, with certain... Um, certain calls. Um, have you ever noticed, you know, you, you press the buttons as a menu option on some calls and it's not receiving that input. Uh, the DTMF signaling isn't being picked up right on the other end. Well, who do you report that to? You can report it to the provider. Um, but what are you going to report? You know, sometimes it's helpful to say this call at this time had this specific problem. And, just having the tools to be able to see that is valuable. Uh, but yeah, you can absolutely listen to that uh, if you're in line. All right. So um, an appropriate question. DTMF. I mean, I know what DTF stands for. 
Uh, so I can only assume that DTMF is down to mother. <laughs> that can't be right. Dial tone multi frequency. I think uh, you know. I think is what it stood for. Essentially, what it is 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 a, a simulation, if you will, or an emulation of the old school cross section. Like you know, you, everybody's familiar with kind of your tic tac toe dial pad. Well, there's a frequency for the vertical lines and the horizontal lines, and whatever combination of frequency this is, two has a unique DTMF code. This one has one. This one has one. So all of that signaling that you see in the SIP protocol. And it's... Wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. So so really, because I've always, I've always known that, like, you know, all the, the numbers sound a little different, and I've always known that they have two tones happening. Right. But you're telling me that one, four, and seven... On the phone, since they're all in a, a vertical row, one of the tones on all of those is all the same. Well, the tone that we hear is a concatenation or a combination of both tones, the cross section, right. if you will. But because but of I'm that, saying just one of the two, mm-hmm. one of the two tones is the same on that vertical line. Well, one of the two frequencies that make up this single tone. Okay, um, and then. Each of the the horizontal lines on the on the dial pad, each of those has a specific frequency. Essentially, the the old school analog stuff did, but this is all emulated now. And uh, give you an example, you know, something we helped a customer isolate. Um, One was using a uh, customer. I don't remember who the SIP provider was, but they were doing uh, in band DTMF, which is basically where in that audio stream you would hear it. Okay, you know, just like me and you talking, beep, you know, it would be part of the audio stream that's in band DTMF. And what they were experiencing was every time this person would, you know, talk or get excited, they would hear a, a beep. And the reality is they were actually vocally talking at the same frequency of that tone. And you would hear the system thought it was a beep. So you'd hear that. You don't see that as that's much weird. anymore, but that's because people have gone to out of band DTMF where when you press that button on a digital device, if they are configured to use out of band DTMF, you don't hear it in the audio stream. You see it in the SIP signaling. So, um, but I think the issue, because uh, this has been a, a year ago now, um, it was, uh, we were able to see with the Wireshark capture, which was easier to get to because of the SD-WAN product we were using. Um, we could see that DTMF code and report it just made it easier to describe the problem, the time we were having the problem and it did get fixed. All right. So let me, uh, I'm going to ask more some like ridiculous questions, but that's because I still don't understand um, really the, the capabilities of this stuff. Okay. So, so I understand what SD-WAN can do between me and the, the data center that the other router network equipment, whatever is at. Um, but if for the, for the MSPs, let's, let's talk about this on the legal side for a minute mm-hmm. for the MSPs that, um, that, that have that paranoid level of security desire, right? Sure. So they don't want, uh, the ISP or the government or whatever person they think is going to look at the stuff may actually be looking at the stuff. I have no idea. Um, they don't want them to see the, the, the payload anywhere along the way. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that they need SD-WAN going from each client 
to wherever those backups are being located? So what I would say there is uh, or once if, so, if your phone number is registered in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and your provider is uh, servicing that with their data center also located in the U.S., at some point, you know, this is under CALEA, uh, C-A-L-E-A. You know, there, there's regulation so that, you know, we have tools for authorities to, you know, look into issues, whether it's a live, you know, threat type of issue or, a, um, you know, uh, reactive or a, um, a recording that they react to later, you know, for archival purposes. You know, those features, uh, those are going to be available at the provider. You know, if they're using Broadsoft, if they're using Metaswitch, you know, whatever they're doing to offer the actual, that endpoint in the data center, they're under regulations. It's That's going to be there. But you at least want it to be used if they have a warrant or if they have, you know, you don't want someone in the middle Someone, someone in your neighborhood that may be, you know, spoofing, you know, things that can intercept traffic, you know, those threats, you know, someone that's going through your private data center, you know, if, if that's a concern for you, those are the places that you can secure, you know, once it comes out of, let's say you do have a cloud access product in the cloud and it's encrypted in the end, when you come out of that on the other end of the data center, you still got to go through wherever that data center is to the cloud application. So, so at that point, it becomes unencrypted. It's whatever it is. You know, if it was encrypted, fine. If it's not encrypted, like we're talking about here, you know, right between there and there. That's why there's there's um, kind of a nuance in, you know, people using a, a VPN, you know, to these uh, like NordVPN, you know, ExpressVPN. Yeah. They have good products. I'm not, not bashing them. But the reality is, if it's a matter of trust, you're just moving the point of who you're trusting to wherever that data center is located. And you don't know where that data center is located. So wherever it comes out to your cloud application, you know, that's a potential risk. The thing about an MSP is if you can be in control, at least, you know, like, let's say you're, you're hosting in your own data center, you know, you've got a rack, a half rack of gear, you know, and you're hosting that dentist application, uh, or maybe you're hosting their PBX, you know, a free PBX or something. I've seen guys do that. And then they're putting their phones on, on site. You can encrypt it between point A and point B to where at least you know that between their phones and your node in the data center, it's completely secure end-to-end, no prying eyes in the middle. Uh, kind of like a VPN, but VPNs cause other problems. We can talk about that you know, if, we, you know, if you want. But uh, you know, you're at least in control of end-to-end that not being visible. And it being reliable. And that's something, again, VPNs don't traditionally do either, is bonding a connection. So bonding and encryption is a, a unique thing to SD-WAN. Okay. Um, I feel like this is a good place to wrap up uh, part two. Okay. Um, I, oh, wait. I have one question I want to get to. Okay. Uh, Tara asked another. What about companies that... Um, that went to work from home policies. Is SD-WAN any different than MPLS for data privacy? Right. Yeah. Is so, it an MPLS backbone still fine? So typically you're not going to see uh, a company invest in an MPLS circuit all the way to the home. No. They're typically going to do that branch to branch or branch to headquarters. So you now have this conundrum of how do we get the same uh, quality, if you will, even though you can use SD-WAN to replace MPLS at that level too, how do you extend that to the home so that 
what they're accessing in that MPLS cloud is is secured even over that last mile. And that's something most people think the solution for is a standard VPN. You know, they might set up OpenVPN or Cisco VPN. And the problem there is you have this slinky effect where the TCP traffic going across that VPN, if there's a hiccup on the internet, it takes a second for everything to come back up. Mm-hmm. And that problem's exacerbated with VPNs because that VPN has to be up before tunnel traffic can flow through it. And with Replify, for instance, as let's say a VPN alternative, it's encrypted between that Replify client on your machine and wherever that node sits in the data center. So similar to a VPN, it's encrypted end to end. And your application that traverses that is um, not having to deal with those slinky effects if there's a network hiccup. Session resume. You know, have you ever been doing a transfer? Mm-hmm. You had a network hiccup and it didn't just pick up where it left off. You had to click restart. And, you know, uh, that, that's got to be the most frustrating thing. Absolutely. You know, SMB shares, you know, just, just to make it simple there, you know, you just got to start over, you know, with Replify, it picks up where it left off because it's looking at things at the byte level. So it's, it can see I've already done up to here and it can pick right back up to the user. They see that they've transferred the whole file again, but if, if they've already transferred half of it, you're just seeing a little bitty hash go across the, the wire. So it, these are tools to extend that MPLS network to a home user or even a traveling user, you know, like Replify. It doesn't have to be a, a box set up at home. Um, this could be something you use while you travel. Um, we can elaborate on that okay. if uh, you're ready for a break there. Hey, thanks for listening to part two. Be sure to check back tomorrow for the next episode. 